Sometime between the years of 1050 and 970 BC, one of the greatest literary contributions that the world has ever seen was given to God's people. And I am speaking of the book of First Samuel. We are pretty fresh into a new year, and you can expect this entire year and maybe even into 2022, we will be spending uh, our weeks in the book of 1 Samuel. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel and read with me from chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And I would ask you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? 1 Samuel is, from the perspective of its genre, is what we call historical narrative. So it's a story, it's a narrative. This whole book is, is a story, but we want to emphasize it's a historical narrative. This is not uh, nonfiction. This is true. This is literal, real history. These are real people that the narrative encompasses. First Samuel is uh, quite an important book in terms of the redemptive scope of God's plan as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Uh, the book primarily focuses on three individuals. That is the prophet Samuel, the first king of Israel, Saul, and then his predecessor, the great king David. And so much of this book is going to be focused in those portions, first on Samuel, and then on Saul, and then on David. This chronicles the establishment of the king of Israel. And that's what makes 1 Samuel so important is uh, at this time in God's history, Israel has no king. So where are we before we get to 1 Samuel? Well, God's people, Moses is dead and Joshua has led the people into the promised land and they've been dwelling there for some time and God had them institute judges that sort of have a kind of civil authority over the people of God. But if you were to read through the book of Judges, things are not going well. The book of Judges says over and over again that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So wickedness is already great in Israel. 
And the authority structure has basically broken down at this point. And so the significance of 1 Samuel is this is where the king of Israel is created and instituted. So we are going to call the sermon series this year, God Made a King. God Made a King. We are going to be looking at the establishment of the king of Israel, which becomes very, very important when we start looking at it as a type of Christ. Now, who wrote the book of Samuel? Uh, Jewish tradition uh, credits it to Samuel, which is why Samuel got the name of the book rather than Saul or David. And I I think that that's likely true. Um, Now, there's some areas that make that a little difficult to to know how Samuel contributed to it, uh, which is why what's potentially uh, the case is in 1 Chronicles 29.29, this narrative is actually attributed to three different authors, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, all three prophets. And what's happening there is the Jewish uh, structure of the Old Testament for a long time had 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings all in one large book. And they called it the Book of the Kings. And the Book of the Kings is said to have these three prophetic authors, uh, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. And so we don't, I don't know exactly when, you know, I can't tell you chapter 2 is... Saul chapter 12 was Gad, you know. But I think that those are the three prophets who had something to do with the writing, compilation, and collection of these four books, specifically 1 Samuel. So sometimes you'll hear me reference Samuel as the author, but I'm going to try to keep it a little more generic because we we don't actually know um, 100%. But nonetheless, as we talked about, this is a very important book in God's redemptive history. It's a very important book. Uh, for us, and I'm excited to see how this book will be used in the life of our church. But as we read, the book opens with a tale of despair. The book opens in a very bleak context. So let's remind ourselves of what we just read, and then we'll see what the Lord has prepared for us in His Word. Look again with me at verse 1 through 3 at some of these Jewish names that are hard to pronounce. There was a certain man of Raphaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. So a man named Elkanah takes center stage, and we are told where he's from. Uh, the text later goes on to shorten it to, uh, to Rama, um, but the longer name, all that's doing is there were multiple cities by the same name. And so that longer name in verse 1 is just a very specific location of where he's from. But Elkanah sort of takes center stage. The text tells us his lineage, and if you were to trace this lineage in other parts of Scripture that talk about his fathers, you would find that he comes from a very significant tribe. He is a Levite. The Levites were uh, very, very important as they were uh, the ones who were the priests in the temple, the ceremonial leaders. Now, he himself, we see, is not a priest, but he comes from a royal tribe. And one of the first things we see is that he, generally speaking, lives up to his namesake. We get the impression that Elkanah, even though he lives in a time and in a territory where wickedness and idolatry is great in Israel, he has apparently not fallen prey. Uh, For example, we look at verse 3. This man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. We're going to see not very long from now that even Hophni and Phinehas, the the priests in Shiloh, were corrupt, despicable, evil men. But nonetheless, Elkanah is a faithful man who is following the sacrifices established for him. 
We see the book of Judges, this great town Shiloh is where the temple was constructed, and he would go, he would travel, he would take his family as the law commanded, and he would regularly, as he was appointed to, go up and worship the Lord here. So we get this impression that Elkanah is a holy and righteous man. But nonetheless, like all of us, though he may be a good man and a good believer, he is not a perfect man. And we know that right from the get-go. Look at verse 2. He had two wives. He's not a good man. Uh, This is not a sermon on polygamy, although perhaps that would actually be a good idea for us to do one time, because polygamy has an interesting role in the Old Testament. God seems to put up and tolerate polygamy with a much greater leniency than he does almost any other sin. He uses polygamy, um, but we know very clearly from Scripture that polygamy is not what God desires for human marital institutions. Uh, if, we won't turn there, but if you want proof of that, you can just read through Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6. Very, very significant passage, Matthew 19, because the Pharisees approached Jesus, and it was custom for the Pharisees to try to ask Jesus difficult questions to stump him. And so one of the questions they ask him is about divorce, and they ask him, when is it appropriate for a man to divorce his wife? And what Jesus does in Matthew 19 is he asks them, have you not read... So he says, let's let the scriptures answer this for us. And he takes them back to the garden. And he says, the garden for me is where I see God telling us what he wants in marriage. And he says, from the beginning, God said, let the, God made one man and one woman. And they came together and the two became one flesh. And let not man separate what God put together. So Jesus tells us, if you want to know what does God expect from marriage? Where do you go? the garden. Go to Genesis. And what do we have in Genesis? We have one man and one woman. Not two women, not three women, not four women. We have one woman. God does not approve of polygamy. That is not how he instituted it. We also see it's one man and one woman. So we also get from the creation, it's not two men or two women. He doesn't approve of homosexuality. He doesn't approve of any of these things. It's a very, very clear picture of marriage. One man and one woman. But Elkanah chose not to do that. And like was common in his day, he had multiple wives. Most likely, the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, but I think that we can deduce with a great amount of confidence why he made this decision. And that leads us in verse 2. The name of the one was Hannah and the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. We'll talk more about that in a second. But what most likely happened is that Elkanah fell in love with and married Hannah. But it didn't take too long for them to realize that she was not able to produce any offspring for him. And so being a wealthy man, being a man of an important tribe, it's very important to pass on his seed. So he married another woman who was able to provide him an heir, and many heirs it sounds like. So, and this also would seem to explain, for example, if you look with me um, at verse 5, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Notice nothing is said about his love for Peninnah, and, and we'll get to this again in a minute, but as he portions these standards, he gives more to Hannah because he loved her. So what is the text telling us? He loves Hannah more than Peninnah. 
So again, I think that these two things together, he has, a strong, he has stronger passions for Hannah and that she's barren. I think that leads us to deduce what most likely happened was he fell in love with Hannah. He married her. She couldn't give him an heir, and so he had to bring on another wife. So though he was, generally speaking, a devout man and a righteous man, he engaged in an institution that God has not intended for us to engage in from the beginning, and that created havoc in their family life. Absolute havoc. Look with me at verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I, am I not more to you than ten sons? This polygamous affair has created rivalry and bitterness and animosity in the marriage. It's a total mess. And, and I want us to begin with just a little bit of pity for Peninnah here. There's no doubt she's the bad guy in this text. Right? So I, I, don't, I don't want to manipulate what the text is clearly doing for us. The text is clearly making her an antagonist. But at the same time, these are real people. Like we said at the beginning, this is real history. This is a real family. This is not just some literary nonfiction story, or forgive me, fiction story. So I, I want us to, at the same time, without excusing her sin, with, without, I'm not asking us to put her sin aside. I want us to realize that the position that she is in. Peninnah has married a man, and she is second place. She carries this invisible silver medal with her everywhere she goes. She is married to a man. She has children with a man. But she knows his heart is not ultimately for her. Women, I'm not saying men don't grieve as well. But women especially, their heart is broken when their husbands are caught in an adulterous affair. Caught looking at pornography. Why does this break their hearts? Because there's something so devastating about a woman knowing that my husband is ultimately finding satisfaction elsewhere. It is this constant reminder that you are not enough for me, so let me go elsewhere. That's why adultery is so heartbreaking and pornography is so heartbreaking. It is an attack on our spouses. And Peninnah lives with that every single day. My husband favors someone more than me. And she's doubly reminded of this every year that they go up for the sacrifice. She is given a physical reminder that her husband loves someone more than her. He duels out the portions which they were supposed to do. This was what the law commanded in your sacrifices. However family you had, you would give a certain portion to each and you would celebrate the feast. And Elkanah did that. But what did he decide to do? He pitied Hannah and he loved Hannah so much, I'm going to give you more than my other wife. So Peninnah sits there at the feasts day in and day out and she has a physical reminder that her husband does not love her as much as he loves Hannah. 
It's truly heartbreaking. Can you imagine, if, you, if you're a married woman in here, can you imagine sharing your husband's affections? That would be difficult. That is not to excuse her sin, but that would be difficult. And then to be reminded of that every year. Elkanah's sin has put Penin in a very difficult situation. And, and we want to be too careful not to say, well she, well, she shouldn't have married him then. Maybe that's true, but back in this day and age, in this context, it was very, very difficult for a woman to be unmarried. Very, very difficult. This is why in the Old Testament, there is so much emphasis on taking care of the widows and the orphans. Life was much harder for widows than it is today. I don't mean to put down widows today. It's still a very difficult lot, and we still need to take care of widows and orphans, but it was a different circumstance, far worse so we have to be too quick not to say, well, Peninnah could have just not married him. He was already married. She should have known this was going to happen. Yeah, maybe, but that was a difficult decision to make. But nonetheless, even though I do think we need to have some realistic pity for Peninnah, this does not excuse the way she treated Hannah. She took this offense that is her husband's fault, and she took it out on Hannah. And that is why the true person this text isolates for us. The true character we are supposed to pity, our hearts are supposed to go out for, is Hannah. And I want us to look very, very intensely at the difficulty of Hannah's lot. Why is Hannah someone we are supposed to be so, uh, feel so much pity for? Well, look at verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah is barren. She is infertile. And that in and of itself is all we need to pity somebody. Being barren, being infertile is an excruciating pain. It's one that many, many people simply cannot relate to. But being barren, not being able to produce biological children is excruciating. You know, when, you, when we grow up as kids... You never imagine that that's going to be your life. You, you, you probably would be surprised as to how many thoughts, if you could, you know, catalog all of your thoughts that you had growing up before you got married, you probably had a lot of thoughts about what kind of a father you would be, what you might do with your kids one day. When I have kids, I... Now, obviously, thank the Lord for... I'm not trying to say that adoption is, is lesser of parenting. Obviously, uh, people who are barren still have plenty of opportunities to be great parents and to have children they love. So please don't hear me putting that down. As a matter of fact, I would encourage every Christian, not just barren Christians, to consider adoption. I read a statistic one time. Uh, I don't remember all the different denominations that were included in this. If it was like just evangelical churches or if it was religious institutions more broadly. Uh, I'm sorry, I apologize, this just popped in my head. But it was something about if, if every church-going family in America adopted at least one child, we would not have a foster care system. That's astonishing. So please, my pity for Hannah, don't hear me putting down adoption. But nonetheless, for barren women and for barren men, it is still an excruciating pain to know that I will never produce biologically natural children. I would ask you, if you have anyone in your life that struggles with infertility, I would ask you, would you pray for them more often than you do? Because I promise you it's harder than you think it is. Would you reach out to them more often than you do? 
Because I promise you it's harder than you think it is. It is difficult to not be able to have children. But nonetheless, that is not the only reason why we are feeling sad right now for Hannah. Because she is not only barren, but she has to live every single day and help raise the other children of her, I don't even know what you would call it. Like, she's not a, a spouse-in-law. <laughs> she's a wife-in-law, as you call it. Whatever this other woman is, her husband's wife, she has to raise her children. She has to see her children every single day. I remember, uh, thankfully, by the grace of God, my wife and I did not spend very long struggling to conceive. It felt long for us, but two years is not that long compared to what most infertile couples go through. But still, during that two years, one of the most difficult things we struggled with was this biblical principle of rejoicing with those who rejoice. It was very difficult to, to do that. Because you're jealous, you're envious, and you desire to see your own children. And when you don't have that, then you are constantly flooded with other people having that blessing. You go to church and it's just filled with babies and children. And it's impossible not to think of, I wish these were mine. And you see on Facebook, a pregnancy announcement, a pregnancy announcement, a pregnancy. And it's like all your friends are getting pregnant at the same time except for you. It's very difficult. But Hannah had something worse than that. You see, she was not just being reminded occasionally on Facebook. She was not simply being reminded at church once a week. She was being reminded every single day. You can't have children and that woman can. That's the reason she's here is because you can't. This is a very difficult lot, but it gets even worse. It's not just the fact that she's barren, and it's not just the fact that she's around these other children she can't have, but the other woman rubs this in her face. I can at least praise the Lord that when my wife and I would come to church and be jealous of other people's babies, they weren't at flaunting it. They weren't mocking her. But that's what Penina did. That's what Penina did. Look at what the text says. Verse 6, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Every single year, Hannah goes up and gets her double portion. Peninnah says, okay, I see that offense. That makes me jealous. That makes me bitter. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this out on her. While you get your double portion, I'm going to remind you, oh, Hannah, you had any kids lately? Oh, no, you're barren. She's not just barren. She's not just around other kids. It's being rubbed in her face. And what's the, the only comfort that's offered in this text? Comes in verse 8. And what does Elkanah say? Am I not more to you than ten sons? That might be um, good advice if there wasn't polygamy going on. I think that in another context, this might not be bad advice. I mean, when we are grieving, when we are bitter, when we are jealous, it is good to be reminded of how God is good to us. It's good to be reminded of that. Because on the one hand, while we have a lot of barren women, and that's very, very sad, you know what we also have? We have single women who want to get married who never do. That's worse. 
Because they won't have children either, but they also won't have a husband. So really, Elkanah's not being all that insensitive here. This really, in a general sense, is not that bad of advice. But you have a lot to be grateful for. But isn't it tainted? Because here Elkanah is saying, is not my love worth more than ten children? And while he's saying that, Hannah knows he's giving it to someone else. You know what? Yeah, I think maybe ten children would be better than a husband who shares me. That's why we're going to see next week, this advice does not console her. And I can't blame her for that. Elkanah's polygamy has caused deep familial animosity, bitterness, envy, rivalry, and pain. And that, in a certain sense, is the point of the text. Samuel has started this way for a reason. He has laid very important groundwork at the beginning of 1 Samuel. So let me give you the two reasons. If we were to summarize, okay, what's the point of this text? Why, why did this need to be written in here? The first one I want us to see is that the establishing the tension, this, this, this drama that's unfolded before us, what, what Samuel is doing, or whoever the author is, they are laying the groundwork for a mighty work of God. What's happening right now is, is the soil is being tilled for a, this amazing work of God to sprout up. God loves to work when we are at our most vulnerable and broken. Because it forces us to recognize and remind us that it is He who is working. He loves to take, make the, the cliche is beauty from ashes. Or, dark, or light shining into darkness. We have all of these metaphors to explore, to explain this reality that God loves to move in circumstances where it is clearly and obviously Him moving. It's the same story. Remember Gideon and his armies? Remember Gideon, they're, they're crossing into the promised land and he's got this great army. And God says, I want you to leave a good portion of these soldiers behind. I want you to go into the battle ill-prepared and outnumbered so that when you win, you won't give credit to the army, but to me. It's that same mindset that's here. There is so much brokenness and dysfunction and there's, there's no hope in this text. And God wants to get us there so that in the coming weeks when we see glorious things happen, we know it's not Elkanah who did this. It's not Hannah who did this. God loves to make beautiful things rise from our most painful and difficult moments. Which provides a helpful reminder for us just briefly. Can I remind you today that not all of your afflictions are the judgment of God? Can I remind you that not every time something wrong or painful happens in your life, it's God's expression of disapproval for you? He can. The Bible tells us he disciplines us as a father disciplines children. God, God does discipline us. So sometimes bad things happen because we need a spanking. But the text is very clear. Who, who is responsible for, Anna, for Hannah's affliction? The Bible doesn't shy away from it. God is. Who closed Hannah's womb? The philosophical theologians among us would say, well, it was technically Adam. 
Because before the sin and before the curse and before the fall, there was no such thing as infertility and broken bodies. So sin is to blame. Not God, sin. Adam. Technically true. But the text doesn't say that. Who's to blame? Well, you say, it's Hannah. Like, we, we are all sinners. We all contribute to the sinful condition of the world. So we are always to blame for our own afflictions because we've contributed to sin. Yeah, kind of true. But the text doesn't say that. Who closed Hannah's womb? Twice, the text tells us, God did. God brought this affliction upon her. This is God. But the text is also very clear, well, maybe not very clear, but it's, it's, it's certainly subtly implied that Hannah is not some great sinner. Sinner, God is just pouring out just punishment on Hannah, right? This isn't like Pharaoh. When the plagues happened to Egypt and, and the army was crushed in the sea, that was an affliction that we all get. We understand that. That guy had it coming, right? That's how we see it. You don't say that with Hannah. God is not punishing her, but he is afflicting her. And you might think that, well, that's kind of a scary message, but I would encourage you, no, it's not. It's a very comfortable, comforting thing to know that sometimes I go through seasons of pain and discomfort and discouragement, and it's not because God is angry with me. It reminds me of, in John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus is presented with a blind man. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? I mean, that's the only reason God would ever make someone blind, right? God is a loving and gracious God. He would never blind someone intentionally. It's got to be our fault or someone's fault. So who, did he commit a sin that made him blind or were his parents evil and his parents are being judged by having a difficult child who's blind? Whose is it? Whose fault is this? What's Jesus' answer? Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why was that man blind? Because God was judging him for his sin? No, because God wanted to afflict him and put him in this vulnerable place so that God could do an amazing work in him and in so doing be glorified. And we see the same thing in Hannah. Why was Hannah afflicted? Because God was expressing his displeasure for her? No. It's so that God could do an amazing work in her. So that God could do an amazing work through her. Sometimes our seasons of valleys and struggles is God bringing us to a place of vulnerability and weakness because He wants to do something glorious. The purpose of this text is to establish the glorious work of God, to establish that what comes from this, the good that comes from this, is clearly God's doing. It's not Elkanah's doing. It's not Hannah's doing. It's God. God is about to glorify himself in this situation. But we see something important in the text as well. Not only is God 
laying the groundwork for some miraculous or glorious movement. But we also see God, how God works providentially in this text. We see how God works providentially in this text. You know, we talk about how God is, is in control of all things and he has an eternal decree and he's accomplishing his decree. But what does that look like in real time? How, how does God accomplish the things he says he's going to accomplish? Well, what we see is that sometimes he will intervene in these great miracles but most of the time, the normative sense in which God works is providentially. And God has sort of manipulated Hannah's circumstances to cause her to behave in a certain way that fits his ultimate plan. Why do I say that? Well, if you'll allow me to jump a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, we did not read this portion of the text, but look with me at verse 11 for a moment. We'll cover this story obviously more in detail, probably next week. Uh, we'll get to the context of this, but look at what Hannah does in her heartbrokenness and her despair. Verse 11, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That's remarkable. So notice what God has done providentially. God has important plans for this son that's going to come, Samuel. God wants to make him a prophet and God wants him to be utilized in the temple. But if Hannah would have had Samuel just a long time ago normally, right after she married Elkanah, she most likely would not have dedicated him like this. Because the text is very clear that she is sort of dedicating him to the temple as a means just to get him. <laughs> I think the, the implication of the text is that had Hannah just sort of had Samuel right away, she never had any issues with infertility or barrenness, he would not have been dedicated to the temple. So look at what God has done. God has closed Hannah's womb to providentially cause her to come to a place where she would be willing to give her first and only son to the temple. And then what Samuel, we will see, is put in the temple. This has incredible ramifications for him. And then he has incredible ramifications for Saul. And then Saul and Samuel both together have incredible ramifications for David, who in turn has incredible ramifications for all of Israel, who in turn has incredible ramifications for Christ, who then obviously has incredible ramifications for us. So you see how God has brought Hannah to this difficult place, but what he is actually doing is setting and moving his chess pieces. He's providentially working to bring about redemption. We are reminded in this text of how God is providentially working in the world to accomplish his good purposes. And that in and of itself is also a comfort. When we are enduring our own afflictions, God is up to something. This is not random and meaningless, but it's ultimately for my good, for God's glory, and, and most likely for the good of mo many of God's people, not just me. That's what I would want you to take with you, so to speak. Why did I choose verses 1 through 8 to discuss? Why did the author of 1 Samuel give to us verses 1 through 8? 
What's the purpose of this? Why start where he did? Well, I think it's that twofold thesis. Number one, he's laying the groundwork for a mighty move of God. And number two, he's revealing how God providentially worked to place Samuel exactly where Samuel needed to be. We see God's providential activity, his providential sovereignty, and we also see the, the, the way in which God glorifies himself in human circumstances. So that's the point of this text. And, and we've, we've talked already a little bit about how to apply this. I think that this gives us great comfort in, in our circumstances. This gives us great comfort. But I want to give you a, a, just two um, more, a little bit more concrete examples of what to do with this. What, what specifically, what were some concrete applications that I can take away and really apply to my life right away? And the first one would be this. The law of God is good. The law of God is good. Why do I say that? How much of this situation, the pain in this, of this situation, the turmoil, the drama, the chaos, what, what ultimately is the cause of it? Polygamy. Isn't it so ironic? Hannah eventually gives birth to a son. Elkanah could have just been with Hannah. What caused all of this was a violation of God's principle. This was not how God set it up in the garden. This is not how God set marriage up. And what do we find in this text? We find the same thing in this text that we find in all the cases of polygamy in the Bible. It doesn't work very well. So you see, the law of God is not arbitrary. It's good. In other words, what I'm reminding us of is what I hope you already know. It's this. You are not smarter than God. Do not try to outsmart God. To a certain degree, that's what most of our sin is. Right? We think we know better than God. We think we're smarter than God. You know what's one of my favorite examples of this? In the secular world, loves to promote couples engaging in marital activities before they're married. And, and, and we can make that sound really smart. We can, right? There's, there's a logic to that. I mean, intimacy in marriage is a very important thing. A lot of marriages are ruined by not having chemistry in an intimate way. And so wouldn't you want to test that out before you sign a lifelong contract? Don't you want to figure that out? Don't you want to make sure you're compatible in that way? That's an important thing. You don't want to go into marriage blind on that, do you? Right? Would you buy a car before test driving it? So you see, we've outsmarted God. But you know what's interesting? Couples who cohabitate before, marry, before marriage are equally likely, and in, mo and in most studies, more likely to get divorced. We're, we're not as smart as we think we are. This text is a reminder to us that our sinful desires that we still have, even post-regeneration and 
the temptations of the evil forces working in this world, we'll almost always find a way to rationalize our sin and make it seem like this is an exception to God's law. This this isn't a time where I can break it. Or just make it seem like, you know what, this is better than God's law. It's smarter, it's more pleasurable, whatever it might be. We always sin because in some way, shape, or form, we think we know better than God. And let me just promise you, you don't. So read his word, determine his will, and obey it. The law of God is good. It is not a burden. It is not a killjoy. When you raise your children, you give them boundaries. You give them rules. And you don't do it because you're trying to torture them. You don't do it because you see all the fun they have in your life and you just think, I want to take their fun away. It's precisely the opposite. You know that what will ultimately take their fun away is autonomy. Is letting them make foolish, destructive choices. That's what will ruin them. That's what will take their fun away. Hannah's not having any fun right now. Peninnah's not having any fun right now. I promise you, Elkanah's not having any fun right now. And their joylessness was not caused by the law of God. Their joylessness was caused by rejecting the law of God. God's law is a blessing. And it's good. But the second point, this is the one we've kind of already discussed, but this is how I want you to apply the sermon's thesis this morning into your life. The second point is this. The first, the law of God is good. The second is this. Trust God with your trials. Trust God with your trials. What do I mean by that? Do I mean that when you go through something hard, it's not supposed to be hard because God is in control? No, no. I've said multiple times from this pulpit that we are not Buddhists as Christians. We're not Buddhists. We don't believe in Eastern spiritual myths that teach things along the lines of life is, re- is not real. There's, there's really no reality. This is all an illusion. There's no such thing as pain. And you need to transcend that. You can overcome. You can transcend your pain. The Bible gives us permission to hurt. The Bible says things like weep with those who weep. It doesn't condemn us every time we weep. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time for everything. There's a time for tears. There's a time for sorrow. So, do I believe I have some magic sermon or some magic Bible verse that's going to make all your pain go away? Of course not. The Bible itself doesn't even pretend to offer that. It doesn't even suggest that it wants to do that. So, I'm not telling you you're not going to have trials. I'm not telling you your trials need to now be easy because of what we've learned. I'm not telling you there's not a place for suffering and weeping. I mean, Jesus himself... Well, he's, he's our supreme example. How did Jesus behave on the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did he go before the Father and say, I'm not afraid of anything. I trust God who's in control. No. He wept. He was so nervous. The sweat was rolling down his face the way blood flows when we're bleeding. And he begged God, please take.
So when I say trust God with your trials, I'm not saying you're not going to have trials. I'm not saying they're not going to hurt. But while the Bible gives us permission to grieve, it, it, Paul does tell us not to grieve as those who have no hope. So we're allowed to grieve, but we are not allowed to grieve as the world does. There is a distinctively Christian way to grieve. We need to grieve, we need to go through trials as Christians. And one of the ways that we distinguish ourselves from the non-Christian grief is that we have this hope that a sovereign, providential God is in control of my circumstances. He has put me here. He wants me here. And why does he want me here? Maybe it's for discipline. Maybe it's to sanctify me. Or maybe it's because he's establishing something because he wants to do something great. Because he has a great purpose for me, for his people, and for his own glorification in and through my sufferings. That he has not lost control of the wheel. That he is working in my life in this moment. That my suffering has meaning. My suffering has purpose. For me and for God's people and for him. That as the scriptures teach us, God works all things for the good of those who love him. So we grieve with hope. Our nation is in a bad spot. Maybe you personally are in a bad spot. Your family is in a bad spot. When we are in these troubled times, these troubled waters, we are not permitted to sail these dark seas without hope. We are not permitted, when, the second we enter into a trial, to not try to see beyond it. To not try to see, you know, this is maybe not the end of the world. Maybe God is merely setting up another circumstance to do something great. Trust God with your trials. It's going to hurt. It's going to be difficult. But you have hope in your trials. You have meaning and purpose. As an anchor for your soul. That a good and loving God is using this for His glory and for your good. So trust Him with your trials. I want to conclude by quoting one of the Bible commentaries I read that made this same point, only did so much better than me. We'll end with this. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. This matter goes beyond the particular situations of biblical barren women. We are facing one of the principles of Yahweh's modus operandi. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. Once we see where God often begins, we will understand how we may be encouraged.